Friends, let's open our Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13, we continue to walk through our Old Testaments and see the way that God is providing our salvation in every step of the way, revealing himself to us and presenting himself to be treasured above all things. And this morning, we're going to cover a story that lasts for two chapters, 13 and 14. And so instead of reading it now and praying, we're going to read it as we go. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dig into the passage. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, will you teach us from your word? It is like bread to us, and it is good and satisfying, and it shows us who you are. Teach us, we pray. Reveal yourself to us, we pray. Let you be the biggest thing on our horizon and not the things that bring us fear and anxiety. You can do this in Jesus' risen name, and so we ask you boldly, amen. We've been watching Israel. We've been watching her enslaved in the land of Egypt, and then she's been liberated, and she went to the base of Mount Sinai, and that happened in Exodus chapter 19. And then from Exodus 19 through the rest of that book of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, and now halfway into Numbers, Israel has stayed put at the base of that mountain. God has been teaching her and training her for almost a year. God knows you don't liberate a people and immediately throw them into the mission at hand, which is to go into the land of Canaan. The people of Israel need to be trained. They need to be shown who God is. They need to learn what it looks like to follow him and pursue him. And so he's kindly, gently revealing himself to them and teaching them. They have a job to do. As they're ready, God leads them from the base of the Sinai Peninsula all the way up to the southern portion of the Promised Land because their next step is to enter the promised land and to conquer it so that God can display his kingdom on earth through Israel as it is in heaven. Once you see Israel established, once she has a king, once she has a temple, the nations will see what it looks like to love and follow God, and many will convert in that day. So that is the step at hand, but before they enter the land to conquer it, God has an idea in Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of the fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So the Lord commands Moses to pick a man from every single tribe, a leader in that tribe. So there's 12 tribes, 12 spies, Plus, he adds Joshua to the mix. And he sends them to, send, to spy out the land, which he says, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So this is important. The spy's job is not to figure out if they can take the land of Israel. The spy's job is to see and explore the land that God has already said he's going to give to them. I'm going to give you this land, but I want you to see it first. This is your preview of what you will have in me. Well, think about this. God knew that even by doing this, even sending spies in the first place, it would sorely test the faith of the people of Israel. He knew they were going to see very scary things that would make them wonder, is God up to this? 
Can God do something like this? Could he actually deliver this land to us? Is he true to his word? And is he willing to do his word on our behalf? It's a test for the people of Israel to see something scary. This is how they respond in verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the lands. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the lands. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. And the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. The spies go out. They spend 40 days in the land. They travel all the way to the north and back down to the south, and they give this very disturbing report. Yes, the land is good. Yes, it is fruitful. Yes, it flows with milk and honey. Here's some of the fruit. It's a beautiful, beautiful land. But none of that matters because it would be impossible for us to take this territory. You've got very large, very strong, fortified cities in this place. You've got different nations who are here. These are all battle-hardened warriors. And not only that, but you have the sons of Anak who were renowned for their height and their strength. There is no way we can conquer this nation, these nations that are gathered in the land of Canaan. Actually, archaeologists tell us that they're not far from the point. They're really not embellishing this. We now know what was in that land at the time that Israel sought to occupy it. And we've uncovered cities like the city of Hazor, which is outside the Sea of Galilee, not far from where Jesus grew up. And we were able to determine that that city had about 40,000 people in it. It was a huge city. It probably had a standing army that was well-trained. This was a volatile area. And they had walls around the city that at places were 24 feet thick. A wall around the city that's as wide as this stage. And you're asking the people of Israel who have been slaves, they know how to make bricks, they know how to make war. You're going to go into this land and you're going to conquer just one city like Hazor. I mean, that sounds absolutely impossible. And then you get this roll call of nations that are there, that are familiar to you, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. These aren't fluffy pushover nations, okay? This ain't the ACC. Like, there's some competition to be had in Canaan. You're not just going to roll through here undefeated. We know that. <laughs> we know that because... Israel has to fight these nations later, and they're tough, they're hard, they're hard to conquer. They give them a run for their money. Well, Caleb, one of the spies, sees all of this and says, let's go, let's take it. And by that, he means God can do it. I don't know how he's going to do it. 
I don't know the plan for taking this land. I don't know the story that Joshua fits the battle of Jericho, and I could have never imagined that. But God says, do it. It's in front of us. Let's take it. But then you have 11 spies that say it can't be done, by which they mean God can't do it. Yeah, he's done some things. I mean, we've seen manna, and we've seen some some neat things in Egypt, but this is too much. Israel hears that report. She's terrified, and she is on the verge of committing apostasy, which would be to leave God and to return to the place where she has come from. Listen to the way that Israel's leaders respond. Turn to chapter 14 and begin in verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the lands, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, uh, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Joshua and Caleb, who had been in the land, they stand up before this congregation who is on the verge of apostasy. They're angry. They almost stone them. And they preach one of the most beautiful, compelling gutsy sermons I have ever heard, and they do it in three verses. They know that the real battleground here, what's at stake, is not up ahead in Canaan. It actually has nothing to do with fortified cities and the sons of Anak and whether the Canaanites have the coastland or not. It has everything to do right here in the human heart. It's not Canaan. It's our hearts. The issue at stake is not our ability to fight. It is our faith in God. Do I believe God at his word that he's going to do what he says he's going to do? Or do I doubt God at his word that he's either not able or not willing to follow through with what he has commanded us to do on our behalf? We know the issue is an issue of faith and not fighting because God says as much in verse 11. He says, how long will they not believe in me? That's the issue. They're not believing in me. They're not trusting me. How long will they resist faith? Hebrews 3.19 summarizes the scene bluntly when it says, they were unable to enter And it has nothing to do with fighting ability because of unbelief. They didn't believe me. And they didn't trust me. 
So Joshua and Caleb, they stand up against the insanity of unbelief and they say that the land is good and God is better. What is the problem? You think the problem is the Canaanites, right? You think it's because they're in the Iron Age and they have weapons and they have chariots and they have cities with thick walls and they have the sons of Anak and warriors of renown. But that's not an issue. They drop the best line in the book of Numbers in verse 9. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That sounds a little bit like 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Which sounds a little bit like the rapper Jay-Z in The Hard Knock Life. I got to eat, so logically, I pray on my foes. But I think Joshua says it best. These enemies that scare you, they're like bread for us. Joshua has just spent a year in the desert eating manna for breakfast. God, by his hand, delivers this bread It's this beautiful expression of his provision. They pick it up. They make breakfast with it. It's bread with a sweetness to it. It's delicious. And Joshua has just been north and south through the land for 40 days. And he sees the sons of Anak. And he says, if God is with us in this thing, we will eat these armies like manna bread for breakfast. That's not a locker room pep talk. That is a statement of faith. That's an apostle's creed. That is a declaration of who God is and what he does and what he is capable of. God is with us and he is greater than our enemies and what he says we will do. And all of that begs the question for us today, Christian. What looms so large on our horizon? What are we afraid of? What is it that robs our joy? What is it that diverts us from following God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength? Is it sin today for you that looms large on your horizon? Sin scares me. It scares me what I do. It scares me what I'm capable of. It scares me where all of this is going to lead. Is it sin that looms large because God is greater than our sin? No temptation has seized us except what is common to man. God fills us with his Holy Spirit that we will have new desires in the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And when we don't, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus, who makes atonement for us in our sin. Sin is bread for us. God makes a meal out of our enemy sin. What about material need? What about the question whether God will really provide in this job, in this space, that I'll make ends meet by the end of the month? I tell you that God is greater. 
God knows how to feed the birds and dress the lilies. God numbers the hairs on our head. God says whatever you ate today, it came directly from his hand to you. It wasn't us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Material need is bread for us. God knows how to feed 5,000 out of thin air. And he can certainly make a meal out of material hardship. Is it an act of obedience for us that scares us? Because God is greater than that. I mean, is he asking us to do something that's really, really hard? To step out in faith and take a risk, something that is going to, by obeying him, cost us our sense of security or our comfort or our peace or time or money? Will people respect us less if we follow God in this? We're going to hear on Tuesday that there are still places in the world where you will be waterboarded if you convert to Christianity. What can we say to brothers and sisters in those places and situations except that acts of risky obedience will be bread for us? Or is it that great and haunting reality of suffering? Is it suffering that looms larger than God on our horizon? Because I tell you that God is greater. Scripture is full of promises that God will use our suffering, bend it to his will, and use it to sanctify us and make us look like his son Jesus. I'm going to hit you with a theologian Tabidi quote. This is one of those quotes you put on an index card, you put it on your mirror, and you look at it in the morning because it is a radical gospel-centered view of suffering that I myself don't have. When suffering comes in the room, I want to run. Or I want to ask God if it's necessary, or I want to ask God to fast forward to get this thing done with so that I can be comfortable again. But this is what Tabidi says. If you are in God... The next time suffering comes in your room, say, welcome my slave. Produce for me the glory that God has designed. Welcome slave. We got work to do. Cancer, chronic pain, the death of a loved one, persecution. Get in here. We got work to do. You will become like bread to me and I will eat every last crumb that God has ordained for my life. You are bread for me in Christ. Christian, their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Don't fear them. Now, I wish we could stop there, pray, and be done. I wish there was a happy ending to the story. But we know that there's not. We know that Israel hears that sermon, and she's unconvinced. And so God hands down his judgment on the people in verse 20. Look at this. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice 
shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. What happens when Christians still sin? We're born again. God's Spirit fills us and draws us into the right way, and and we resist that, and we know what's right, and we do what's wrong. God still loves us, right? And God still forgives us, right? Is there any cost or consequence for a born-again believer for our sin? And the answer is yes, always. It always hurts us to sin, but sometimes it hurts us in really, really big ways. You've got these 11 spies who went to do God's work and they ended up disbelieving God and almost leading the entire congregation into apostasy. And lo and behold, the grace of God, he forgives them. You resisted me. You led people astray. You've disobeyed me these 10 times. And yet God says, because of my loving kindness, I pardon you. I forgive you. Imagine the grace of that kind of God. I will not hold this sin against you forever. But in this case, there are consequences. These 11 and the congregation they represent will wander the wilderness for 40 years until the generation that did not believe dies out and not one of them will see the promised land that God meant to give to them. Only this one spy, only Caleb, he does what God calls him to do along with Joshua and they will enter the promised land. If God paid us back in this life consequences for every sin we had committed, none of us would be here. I would not be here, I would not be your pastor if God laid on me the consequences for my sin. Praise God that he's kind and that he holds back so much grief that we deserve from our rebellion against him. But there are times and there are places God moves his hand just a little bit and we feel heavy, awful horrific consequences for the sin we commit. Yes, we're forgiven. Yes, God loves us and even carries us, but we face the consequences. I don't know if that's a a broken or estranged relationship. It's broken trust. It's lost time. It's lost money. It's lost respect or health. Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's his goal. And you better believe if he doesn't get that, he's going to maim you in the process. Sin has an exacting and an awful price for dabbling in it. And many of our congregation will limp through this life with the consequences of our sin ever afresh dependent on God to hold us even in this. 
Now, all this talk about the threat of war and the reality of sin and the consequences of sin, if at any time of the year made us hopeful and eager to get ahead with Advent and to look forward to the gospel news of Christmas, it would be now. It would be now to think on that nativity scene. Now, I know when we decorate our homes and our public spaces with the nativity scene, it is always warm and cozy right? It's just shiny and warm and clean. I look at a nativity scene and I think, man, I wish I was born in a manger. That just looks, it looks so comfortable. And the room service is better than Lexington Med. I mean, it just, it looks good and I wish I was there. But not everybody felt warm and fuzzy when they heard that Jesus, the King of the Jews, was born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2 says that when wicked Herod heard it, he and Jerusalem trembled with him as they should tremble. 1 John 3.8 explains the reason why wicked people worry over Jesus' birth. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he's here. That's why he's coming. And if you are part of the works of the devil, you have something to be afraid of because when he comes, he comes to fight and he will be victorious. And that's the celebration of his, revive, of his arrival. Let the devil tremble. Jesus, the King of Kings, he is born in Bethlehem and you and I, believer, will eat his enemies like bread. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come in this celebration of your advent, your first appearing. Come quickly in your second appearing where you will make all enemies the enemies that dog us, the enemies that make us fear, the enemies who persecute us, the enemies who undermine our faith, you will make them your footstool and we will eat them like bread. Be victorious among us, King Jesus, in your risen and reigning power at the right hand of God. We plead with you in that same name, Jesus' name. Amen.